open. If, uh, if you need a Bible today, we've got them. Just raise your hand, and we will have an usher bring them to you. If you do not have a Bible of your own, this is yours. It's, it's a gift from us to you. Uh, keep it. You know, write your name in it. It's, it's a great thing to have. And I really believe just by reading the Bible, you, I mean, God speaks to you in powerful ways. And so um, maybe you haven't picked one up in a while. Pick one up. It's, it's an incredible, incredible uh, book. So uh, we're in this series, like I said, we, we, we took a little break last week, but this week we're jumping right back in with both feet uh, because we're getting into some pretty intense stuff. So um, one of the intrinsic challenges about this book, about the book of Revelation, is that it's written to a church who was excluded, right? The church for the first 300 years of its history was just completely excluded from all public life. They were excluded from politics. They were excluded from, um, from you know, local governance. They were excluded really from the economy. They were excluded. And we're a church that's included, right? And so we read this through a completely different lens than the first people who would have read this book. We, you know, it's a book to a church that's persecuted, and we're not persecuted largely today. I mean, if you go around to the rest of the world, you see some persecution, but you don't necessarily see it in America here today. There, there might be some, uh, you know, some freedom of speech issues that we're going to be dealing with in the, in the near future, and I'm sure we will be, but we're not excluded. We're not constantly on the brink of disaster, whereas they were constantly on the brink of disaster. It was written to a group of people that practiced a religion that was illegal, and Christianity is totally legal in America. I mean, so we are looking at this book through a completely flipped around lens, and we have, that's just one of the things we have to understand reading this book, that our frame of reference is 21st century Americans. Whereas theirs is first century persecuted church, excluded from everything. And that's really important as we go into the rest of this book. Um, because we're going to start getting into some stuff that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But we have to remember it's through their lens, not ours, that we look through the book. So I'm going to give you a quick overview. If you, if you haven't been with us, I, I really think that you could just jump right in. So if today's your first day uh, with us and you're like, oh man, I, I haven't been through this whole Revelation series, definitely go check out our podcast, check out the website, and, and listen to some of the old ones. Definitely listen to the Easter message, because that is the key. If you were here for Easter, you should totally understand everything else that comes in the book of Revelation. That's the key that unlocks the entire book. It's the theological center of the book, and there's a reason why we did that on Easter, uh, because it is also about the resurrection of the Lamb, the, vic- the victory of the Lamb. But let me give you a brief overview if, if you know, you're like, man, what, what's happened so far? So, so far, this guy named John, who's this apostle, he was a pastor to the church in Ephesus. He, he was too popular to just kill outright for his illegal religion, for his Christianity. And so they exiled him to this island called Patmos, and he's there just to rot and die on this island when all of a sudden he gets a vision of his old friend Jesus. Jesus stands before him. And, and begins to give him a vision of who he is. And, and then we, you know, we see Jesus right in the very beginning, and he gives this message to seven churches, which we know to be the complete church, all of the church, not just these seven churches, but is relevant for us today and is relevant for them then. It's a relevant thing. And so he looks at these seven churches, and, and, and he, some of them he says, hey, you need to stop, you need to do something else, and what you're doing is counterproductive. Some of them he praises. 
But he looks at the seven churches, and then after that, that vision just sort of stops, and the next thing John gets is his picture of heaven. And one of the most important verses I'm just convinced in is in chapter 4, where, where John gets his vision of heaven, and, and Jesus says, come up here. I'm accessible. I'm open. I want to have a relationship with you. Come up here. And so Jesus tells him to come up here. Let me show you what happens next. It's, a very, it's an invitation to the throne room of God for John to get a beautiful picture of what's going to happen. And that's where we left off on Easter. On Easter, we looked at this whole idea that there was power and control on, on the throne, that God is sitting on the throne and he's holding this scroll in his hand and, and it's sealed up with seven seals. It means it's completely sealed. And, and John asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? And then he weeps because nobody was found worthy. The scroll is God's will as it is on earth, and as it, uh, from, on earth as it is on heaven. It, the scroll is God's purposes for humanity. The scroll is the whole idea that God wants to make new creations in a new creation. That God wants to redeem the entire world. It's God's plan of salvation for the world. That's what's in the scroll. So John weeps because that scroll will never be opened without someone worthy. And then all of a sudden he sees a lamb as if it has been slain. And the Lamb is now worthy to open each of those seven seals on the scroll. And so we're going to see what's next. Like I said, the scroll is God's will. The scroll is all that happens next. So over the next few weeks, we're going to see what happens next. We're going to open each of these little seals on the scroll, and we're going to sort of see what John saw and why is it important for us today. So before we get into this, there's something that you need to understand. There's something that would have been on the minds of the people reading this book. And so we sort of need to transport our minds to that as well. So empires are all about power and control, right? Military control, economic control, food control. Rome was one of these empires. The church lived in the, it was the superpower of the day. They controlled everything all the way up from Britain. That's one of the things we forget is that Rome actually, you know, we've excavated much of Rome or much of Britain and we've found Roman artifacts all over the place. All the way up there down to Egypt. I mean, the, it just ruled everything, the Roman Empire of this day. And, and this is where John lived and this is where the church lived. And in their minds would have been, in the church's minds, you've got to remember these are Jews, much of them are Jews who have converted to Christianity and and people who have come into the faith. So in their minds, there's a particular story that really, really matters. Actually, for the rest of the book of Revelation, ever since we started hearing about this lamb character, this story really matters. And that's the story of the Exodus, the story of leaving Egypt, because this would have been a fresh picture in their mind. And we have to remember, Pharaoh had this mythology of control. Pharaoh had this mythology of power. And wherever he is in control, he had the military, any of his land, he was in control over the food production, over the economy, over all things. Pharaoh literally puts himself in the place of a god that needs to be worshipped. In the same way, the Roman emperor Domitian has the same thing going on. He sees himself as control over the military, control over their power, control over the economy, and then also a god to be worshipped. So the early church would have seen a lot of similarities to the Exodus. To that early story. What does Moses do? Moses comes 
and disassembles Pharaoh's sense of power, Pharaoh's sense of control and authority. And what does he do? Moses comes and announces these plagues by God. And they're directly attacking Pharaoh's sense of control. The water supply, the crop, the, even in the very end, um, <clears throat> even toward the very end, Pharaoh's not even able to control life and death in his own household when his son dies. So what Moses does is he comes and announces these plagues, and, and it, it just utterly ruins this myth of control that the government has, that we can control all things that Pharaoh has, and God leases his people through a completely different way, through the blood of the lamb. So this is why it's important that we know the lamb, the whole idea of the lamb, because it takes us all the way back to the Exodus. And I think the story of the Exodus asks us, leads us to ask this question. Who will we identify with? Not necessarily us, maybe, but the first people who were leaving Egypt at the time. Who will you identify with? Will you identify with Pharaoh, the one who had this mythology of power and control? Or will you identify with the lamb who's, by the blood of the lamb, you were saved? Who will you identify with? So this narrative was happening all the way through, way before the time of Revelation was ever written. So the Christians living in Rome would have gotten this story. So today we're on chapter 6. If you've got a Bible with you, um, I'd recommend, I mean, I know we're going to have it on the screens, but I always recommend a Bible because you might want to look back at it when we're on a different verse on the screen. It's just really important. Today we're going to get through eight verses. We're going to get through four of those little seals that Jesus is opening. And these are what you've probably heard of, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Right? We've seen movies on these, and people post videos on YouTube with all kinds of wild theories, and we'll talk about that all in a minute. Let me read the first. uh, By the way, this is where most people stop reading the book of Revelation. All the way up through chapter 5, the vision of heaven, all that stuff, then they get to chapter 6, and they're like, well, done with that. You know, (laughs) not going to even begin to investigate with this stuff. So let me read these first eight verses. I watched as the Lamb open the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and before me was a white horse. His rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. It was given power to take peace from earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice um, of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and before me was a pale horse, and his rider's name was Death, and Hades was following close behind. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine and plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. You all get that, right? Like, we could just go home right now. Everybody, oh, everybody just intrinsically gets what this is about. Of course not, you know? And I've got to tell you, verse, this, um, I, I read piles of commentaries, 
And I didn't get it until I, I talked to an old seminary professor of mine. And, and we sort of worked through this together. So I've, you know, this is a tough book. This is tough reading because exactly what I told you before. Our eyes, we're, we're 21st century people viewing this text completely opposite than the first century people. So looking at this, like, this doesn't make any sense. This is all weird imagery. And just so you know, it's not super easy to get. This is tough stuff. And so I want you to get a couple things. Um, one, the seven seals. They sort of do this rhythmic thing. Now, you're going to be tempted when you read the next few chapters. You see seals, you see um, trumpets blasting, and you see bold judgments. And the temptation is to think that these are linear things. But in John's mind, the author, these are sort of all wrapped up in some sort of weird time warp. It's like all happening all at the same time. So we're going to go forward in linear time here, but we have to remember we're sort of pausing in time as we read the next couple chapters. Because in John's mind, we're not moving forward. We're sort of seeing this all happen at one time. That's one. Two, what I teach, what I'm about to teach It's all about the political situation of the day. It would be impossible for me to teach these next segments without somehow talking about the politic of the empire versus the politic of the lamb. You will be tempted, as you listen to me preach, this temptation will cross your mind. You're going to go home and go, ah, see, honey, I told you, he's an Obama guy. Or you're going to go home and be like, oh, no, he's a Fox News watcher. You're going to hear something, and everybody's going to hear the same thing, and you're going to flip it around, and you're going to say, this is what I believe. I'm, let's just stop. Don't do that. Are we all good with that? We, can, we, can we do that? Don't do that. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is show you what the early church, how they viewed this text. That's the only goal, is to say, how do we follow the Lamb through all of this? So can, can we just all agree we're not going to do that to me? Yeah? Because that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not going to stand up here and, and throw out some political agenda. All I'm going to do is tell you how the early church saw this. And apply it a little bit to today, which is going to get a little bit politically strenuous for us today. Sound like fun? All right. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. So the politics of the empire are always left and right, and there's middle and stuff like that. But the politics of the Lamb are completely different altogether. And that's one of the things that we begin to see as we move forward. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, so lastly, before I break this down, my fear is that when we hear what I'm about to say about this text, uh, you'll, you'll hear it as Americans in the church. And it's okay to be an American in the church. I'm an American in the church. That's, that's totally great. That's totally fine. But what I'm talking about is not of how to fix America. So I want you guys to get that. What I'm talking about is how the early church viewed this text. Capiche? Something my grandpa always used to say to me. We're Italian. Capiche? Okay. So the goal of this text in preaching this morning is not to fix America, although I think the Lamb has a lot to say, but to learn the politic of the Lamb to learn the way, the behaviors of the lamb in public life. That's what this is talking about, is contrasting. And when we're able to, to learn and live the politic of the lamb, then I think is when we'll be able to be the best witnesses to the rest of the world. And one of the things that is going to be a continued theme is the preaching of the gospel. It's in the book of Revelation. That's the next big continued theme. 
is the preaching of the gospel to the whole world. So I think that we could best preach the gospel when we're on the Lamb's agenda, not the Empire's agenda. So let's break this down. Let's get into the fun stuff. All this build up, there better be some controversy, right? Six, one through two. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown as he rode out to conquer, as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, like I said, there's a number of interpretations of these texts. In fact, you might be reading a commentary, and you might come to me and be like, but Pastor Dave, this one says this. So I should have said this in the beginning. This is what I'm doing. I've read all the commentaries, all right? I was stacked. My eyes were bleeding this way. Just stacks and stacks and stacks of commentaries. And I, what I did in, in preaching, you can't, you can't stand up here and be like, well, this one says this, and this one says this. That's, that's for seminary. That's for a different setting. What, what you have to do is pick one, right? And so what I've done is I've picked one that I think fix, fits the best context in the book of Revelation, the best context in the entire Bible, that I think fits the entire narrative of the Bible. So what I'm, is what I'm telling you right? It could not be. Do I think, am I like super solidly convinced that, that this is the thrust of the teaching of Revelation? Absolutely. But there's some people who have, who have taken the text in complete opposite directions, and I just want to warn you of that as we get into it. Anyways, on the eastern border of Rome, so we're talking about the white horse bent on conquest. What does this mean? As the seal is open, he sees a white horse bent on conquest. And one of the things we have to remember is John is speaking to us in metaphor. He's trying to teach us something through his visions. So this is something that the early church would have seen. On the eastern border of Rome, there was this other massive empire, which today would be like in Saudi Arabia, the whole Arab Peninsula, that whole area. And there was this empire called the Parthians. They held the Arab Peninsula, and they were constantly a threat to Rome. Constantly. They were famous for breeding white horses. They did that for this intimidation and this blending in factor. They bred white horses, and they were also famous for being these archers that, could, that can shoot like, uh, just complete accuracy from their horse, which is a very hard thing to do. They passed this trait on. And so you see a white horse. The, the first horse is a white horse, and the rider is holding a bow and an arrow. It's a clear reference to this Parthian tribe who lived on the border of the eastern flank of Rome. The problem is Rome wants to expand east, right? Rome wants to grow. And the way that Rome does war is with big dudes in big armor with the newest machinery, and they walk up all together. But the problem is that the Parthians, when they fight Rome, they, they're asymmetrical warfare. They're, you, they don't line up to fight you just like everybody else. It's nice in war when you know exactly what your enemy's going to do, but they did not know what their enemy's going to do. They rode on these horses, they rode around, they flanked them, they shot them with bows and arrows. They never got close enough for Rome's weapons to be effective. So the Parthians utterly destroyed Rome in these battles on the Eastern Front. They fought in unconventional wars, non traditional warfare. When they got to the front lines, they killed a lot of Romans and they were effective. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, always having this mighty power, always being able to win wars, always being able to overwhelm your enemies in the most fierce uh, way. 
and all of a sudden you have an enemy that doesn't fight in traditional ways. Can anybody imagine that? Anybody smell what I'm stepping in? So what John is saying is Caesar thinks that he has full power and authority over this conquest. And this is just how empires act. That That they act in conquest and power, but all of a sudden these other little things pop up like the Parthians, the white horse. They pop up to remind you, you don't have all the power. You don't have all the control. And they scare us to death. What John is saying is that there's always going to be enemies at the gates. And and when you act in the way of the white horse, always bent on conquest, then you're always going to produce more white horses. More white horses will always want to pop up. And so we have these enemies over there. So we build fences. We we put people to patrol the fence and, and more enemies come. So what we need are core weapons, more chariots, more spears, more bows, Right? This is the politics of the empire. This is what John is saying. The politic of the empire is to build military power, strength. In a little bit, we're going to get to the politic of the It's how the white horse gets lived out. That no matter how much you build up your white horse power, it never goes away. The threats against you never go away. They just keep coming and coming and coming because there's always a rider on a white horse that wants to come in conquest. Revelation 6, 3 through 4. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take away peace from the earth and make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Like, what on earth does this mean? So if the white horse is the threat from the outside that John saw, The red horse is the threat from the inside. It's the threat from within. When you read Roman history, they had a very um, effective plan at killing insurgents, killing people within their communities that tried to rise up against the empire. What John is trying to say is the empire is trying to keep control no matter what. And he's reminding the church, see, they killed you all when you rose up. See, they did that. There, I think there's a reason why in, in Romans 13, right before you get to the, the whole period of, um, or when, you, when they start talking, when Paul's talking about governance in Romans 13, one of the things that he reminds them to do is to, to not rise up. He's like, hey, the government has the power of the sword. They're going to come and get you. And this is what John, we're not in this context, the red horse context, but the early church was. We're not in that, the early church was. So what are some examples? 70 AD, the Jews kept rising up in revolts over taxes and over things like that. What did Rome do? It crushed the temple in Jerusalem. It killed all the Jews and wiped and scattered them across the earth. (coughs) Rome was crushing any little popular movement that might be against them. The politics of the red horse is that as Caesar builds more and more power, there will always be a constant threat to his power by people who are on the bottom end of the totem pole, by disenfranchised, things like that. And when they bond together, then the government wipes them out. So imagine with me for a second, a system of government that's always worried about the threat from within and always trying to put down that threat. It's a politic that once you have power the way that the world does power, you have to keep it. 
And so you might do things if you're this type of government, like, you know, like maybe like want to listen to all of your uh, people in your government. Now, you might hear that and hear, you think I'm talking about the NSA, but I'm not. You're, I'm talking about the basically Gestapo-like secret service that was around in Jerusalem at the time and who listened into their neighbors. This is stuff that's happened for generations and generations and generations. So you might, you know, the Russians had the gulag pull pot just, just straight up kill people. North Korea has executions and works camps, work camps from anybody who might rise up against them. When you're an empire, you've got to keep power however you can. And so you act like an empire. And the subtle way might just be listening. So what John is trying to tell the church is you have to see that this is just the way that empires act. They just act this way. This is their politic. This is how they live out what they believe. Revelation 5-6. through six. Now, either you guys are all falling asleep or everybody's angry. All right, good. There's a little chuckling. Oh, we're going to have a conversation with the pastor after this. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and before him was a black horse, its rider holding was a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. This is the horse of famine. And so there's almost this like, like once conquest comes, well then death comes on the inside, and then famine comes. There's almost that like play along with this too. And then the next one, plague. It's almost that like play there. But back to the mythology of Pharaoh for a moment. His mythology was that he's in control, that he has power over the economy, that, that his hand fed Egypt. But all it took was one good plague of locusts for him to realize he's not in control. And for all the people, for that mythology to just come down. Right? So here's what's interesting about famine. What happens is that the supply and demand drive the economy, right? It doesn't matter what kind of system of government you live in. When there's famine, supply and demand, that actually matters. And so what's happening here is this hyperinflation. And, and so the, they're saying this amount of food, there's a, the writer has a scale and it's measuring food for money. And basically what he's saying is you will buy way less food for a day's wages. So uh, you'll buy food for yourself. You'll, buy, you'll be able to basically buy yourself lunch for a day's wages. That's what it is saying. Is that the, when the politics, the politics of the empire is that they want to make it sound like they're in control of the food supply, but they're not really in, in control. This horse comes in and dismantles that whole idea, this myth of control. Just before World War II broke out, there are stories of Germany when people would take wheelbarrows full of cash to buy a loaf of bread. Because there was so much, the government was just printing and printing and printing and printing money because of inflation. Then there's this little note about not touching the oil or the wine, which was a chief export of Rome and which made people pretty wealthy. And one of the things that, is, that he's reminding the church is that the powerful elite will never go through this stuff because they don't care about you. That's really... Don't take that as me talking about America or anything like that. That is literally what happened in Rome. Is that the powerful elite didn't have a problem with their food supply. They didn't have a problem with their oil or their wine. They were good. It sort of reminds me of like North Korea. North Korea has gone through famine after famine after famine. And they're starving their people. 
Do the leaders seem starved? Absolutely not. They are living in luxury and they have all kinds of food. The black horse has come to North Korea. has all over the place when you see this type of thing happen. The powerful and elite, eventually, they just care about themselves. And I think the politic of the black horse is this, is that, uh, imagine this with me, empires like to give off the myth that they're in control over everything, right? Over the economy, over everything, but bubbles burst, right? Like, they're not in charge of that. Financial downturn happens. I mean, we look at these things, people are not really in control of these things. We think they are, but they're not. When this kind of thing happens, you know, gas prices shoot up through the roof, the poor bears the burden. I mean, this happens all through history, all through time. This horse breaks down the myth that somehow we're in control over our own economy. That's what this horse does. Revelation 6, 7 through 8. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked before me and there was a pale horse, which is green, by the way. Um, it's creature, it's, I'm sorry, its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed close behind him. There were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, plague, and wild beasts of the earth. This fourth horse is a symbol of things like plagues. And these things happen throughout human history. The Black Plague, for instance, a conservative estimate says that a quarter, one-fourth of the earth was wiped out. Uh, some real radical estimate says two-thirds of the earth's population was wiped out. But again, we need to look back to Pharaoh because in the early church's mindset, they, they would have been thinking Pharaoh here. The guy put out this myth that he was in control over life and death. When in reality, what happened in the last plague is that his child, his firstborn son, died. He wasn't even in control over plague in his own household. So this green horse, this pale horse, is a reminder of that, that the government's not in full control, the empire isn't in control. The politic of the green horse would say that people who are sick, we have to quarantine them and put them on an island by themselves. Kind of like the lepers in Jesus' time. The four horsemen dismantle the myth of power that Caesar has. And this is why it's so important for the church. Because what John is trying to tell the church is the empire is trying to put out this myth that they're in control, they're in power over everything, but we know who sits on the throne. We know that. What is John trying to teach us? The politics of the lamb. So let's look at the white horse. Where the white horse, and this is going to be in your notes, where the white horse says that the politics of Caesar says, be fearful of outsiders, exclude people. Some people are better than others. The politic of the Lamb says that none of us are outsiders in Jesus Christ. That we have no outsiders here, only insiders. When you follow Jesus, there's zero outsiders in the kingdom of the Lamb. So look at Galatians. These will be up on the screen. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. So in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through faith. For you were baptized into Christ, having clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free. There is um, male, neither male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. The white horse says, they're coming to kill us. They're coming to beat us up. They're coming to take our stuff. 
And the politic of the Lamb says, we are all one in Jesus. Why is it so hard for us to believe that sometimes? Red horse. The politic of the red horse is to crush those who rise up against me. A constant recognition. The politic of the Lamb is a constant recognition that God hears the cry of the oppressed. The, the last is the first. That the people who get overlooked, we give them special places of honor. That's what the politic of the Lamb says to the red horse. The politics of the Lamb is that the parts of the body that seem weak are really indispensable. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 21-26. What Paul's doing here is he's, he's teaching about... Um, He's teaching about the body and about how we all have these special gifts and, and these special abilities that God has gifted us with. And he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that's the parts that should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. See, what, what John is trying to do is say, church, you are different than the empire. You are completely different. You are steeped in living in their ways. Don't act like them. It's not so among you. Among you, you ought to care for everybody. Everybody ought to be an insider in the, in the community of God, in the kingdom of God. Among you, you ought to treat even the weakest with special honor. The ones that the world says that the, these people aren't valuable, you ought to treat them with special value because they are precious in my sight. They are my treasures. In the kingdom of God, everything is flipped around from the empire. The problem is we live in a world of empires, right? A world where, where the white horse is common. A world where, where the red horse is just, like, we just hear about it in the news all the time. And in a, in a world where, where this black horse just starts to show its ugly head. The black horse versus the lamb. Famine. And, and I, I want to say this, I'm not sure that we're famine-proof. You know, we're, we're not like earthquake, tornado-proof, or anything like that. You know, we're going to have hurricanes. People of God are going to have to suffer through those with other people. <laughs> but people who are shaped by the black horse constantly want to hoard stuff, constantly want to keep stuff, constantly want to keep in control of their own stuff in their own life, and they don't want to be generous with what we have. But the politic of the lamb is to be generous. I saw this most powerfully. I'll just tell you a story rather than, although there's a there's hundred verses I could share with you, but let me just tell you a story. I was in, um, I almost said North Korea because I've said North Korea a thousand times in this sermon. I was in New, or not New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, Plaquemine, in, right after um, Hurricane Katrina, and I was assigned to a shelter that did not yet have food distribution. There was this little Baptist church with this little old lady who made us jambalaya, I mean like three meals a day of jambalaya, it was awesome. The church emptied their coffers. The church had no money left. As soon as the Red, trucks pulled, uh, Red Cross trucks pulled up, 
they said, oh man, we thought we were going to have to take another offering. You know, we, we spent all of our money and we've taken special offerings to feed you. And that's just what one person said to me because I was there and I was a pastor and they told me that. They didn't tell the whole other people that. You know, the politic of the black horses, we better hoard, we better save, and nobody better come after my stuff. You know, if something happens, I'm, I'm secure. I'm going to shut the gates and grab my gun and shoot those who are trying to get my stuff. You know, that's the politic of the black horse. But the politic of the lamb is to give everything out until you have nothing left because we rely on God anyways. That's radical. That is absolutely radical. You see what John is doing to the church here? He's saying, come out of this empire. Don't share in her ways. In fact, in chapter 18, he will actually say, come out, come out of Babylon. When she's talking about Rome, do not share in her ways, in her plagues, in her death, in her adulteries. Don't share in that type of stuff. You're called to something better. And this is what he's trying to tell the church. You are called to something better. The pale horse. I'm sorry, the politic of the lamb is radical generosity in every situation. That's your fill in the blank. That's what the politic of the lamb is compared to the politic. And I use the word politic for a very particular reason. Because the word politic means the actions of a community. Right? That's what it means. It's like, what do you actually believe? And so that's why I use the word politic. The pale horse versus the lamb. The fear of sickness and death. Even in Jesus' ministry, there were people that fit this description. The lepers, they were, they were secluded, they were put over there, and no one touched them, right? Nobody even went up to them. And they would have been disgusting, like, like skin falling off, and, and, and you would have been afraid for your life, and it, it just would have been horrible to, to deal with these lepers because you wouldn't want your family to die. But the early church was shaped by this politic of the Lamb. But this politic of, of Jesus who was unafraid to walk up to lepers and to touch them. The early church was absolutely shaped by this. And, and so people, they, they just thought, hey, if we're given the gift of eternal life, then we should go help people who are sick. I mean, hospitals, hospitality, that's where that word comes from, by the way. And this whole idea, hospitals were started by Christians, by the early church, who was not afraid to touch sick people, who were not afraid to lay hands on them and heal them, not afraid to pray over them. So the people who have already been given the gift of eternal life should have no fear of embracing those who need an embrace. The politic of the lamb in the face of the pale horse is to embrace those whom society rejects. When we watch the news, we should not be surprised when an empire acts like an empire. But like I said before, when we read Revelation all the way up through chapter 18, I mean, John is leading us up to this moment in chapter 18. There's this call, come out of her, come out of her Babylon. So you don't share in her sins and her adulteries. And so you're not shaped by Caesar's politics, but by the politic of the lamb who was slain. I want to read the best statement I could find about the way that the Lamb's community ought to operate. See, this is what John is doing. He's saying there's two communities here. There's the community of the empire and the community of the church, the community of the Lamb. And this is how you are to operate. If you've got a Bible, it's worth turning to Romans 12 with me. If not, it'll be up on the screen. And, and just sort of, 
you could, you could just hang out here for days, okay? Romans 12, and then we're going to end with this. Starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Wow, politic of the Lamb. But rather, think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed for each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to each other. So we don't rat each other out, we don't sell each other out for the empire, for the way they operate. Jump with me to verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. The politics of the Lamb is just coming out strongly. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope and patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Do you see the politics of the Lamb coming out there? Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Wow! As opposed to the white horse. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Black horse, right? Even red horse. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That doesn't work with the white horse mentality. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but be over, but overcome evil with good. When you learn the politic of the Lamb, you are not defeated by evil, but you will defeat evil with good. One last word on this. I, as you, many of you know, I go to the skate park a lot. and I, It's been horrible this rain. It makes concrete wet and slippery and... That's where broken hips come from, so I don't go in the rain. If you didn't know that, that's where broken hips come from. Anyways, and there are a ton of kids who think that they're countercultural, and, and I just laugh. You know, the kids who I, kids wear upside-down crosses, the kids who, kids who have pentagrams, they just think that they're so countercultural and stuff like that. But really, they don't understand. They're just fitting into the larger community of the empire. Kids who, you know, just think that they're like against society. You're just fitting into the larger, the larger conversation of the empire. You know, it, it's, it's not really countercultural at all. What can be more countercultural than serving a God who lives, it, it, living by the politic of the Lamb and returning good for evil? What can be more countercultural than that? You know? Even us in our own work environments, in our own living environments, what could be more countercultural than loving people who hate you? I mean, this is what John was calling the church to do in the face of the empire, in the face of the way the empire treats the church, to love them. This morning, 
What's your politic? Do you buy into the politic of the white horse conquest, dividing, conquering, or the lamb? Do you buy into the politic of the red horse? The poor are marginalized, and, or do we buy into the lamb? Do you buy into the politic of the black horse, the hoarding? Or do you buy into the politic of the lamb and radical generosity? Do you succumb to the fear of the pale horse, or will you live in the confidence of the lamb? We, as a community, are to be shaped by the lamb, not by the four horsemen. Let's pray. Father, I I realize that this is big imagery for a lot of us. God, this this is a different kind of message that you gave in Revelation. But Lord, as as much as it depends on us, I pray that this church would live by your politic, by the politic of the Lamb, that we would love people in the face of their conquest, that we would love people in the face of insult. Lord, that we would act and look like you to the rest of the world. Lord, would would we be more defined by the Lamb on the table than by Pharaoh and his myth of power and control? Would you help us to realize that we don't have everything in our hands, but that you are in control? Father, thank you for helping us to understand this text today, and I pray that we would chew on this for a week or two, Lord, that this would just be something that we might chew on and think about and see the way that the empire moves in our lives and see the way that the lamb moves in our lives and help us to act like the lamb. Maybe there's some of you today who just simply need to give yourself over to the Lamb. I just want to invite you, and you could do that simply right where you're at, and just say, Lord, I've given myself to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.